0: Welcome to the Sam Says Podcast. I'm Samantha Oldsfry, the CEO of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans, also known as IMHIP. In this podcast, we focus on all things surrounding the Illinois Medicaid Managed Care Program. Welcome to the Sam Says Podcast. I'm the Sam and Sam Says, and today I'm thrilled to welcome back my good friend and policy expert, Sarah Howe, Senior Director at Third Horizon Strategies to talk about the importance of recovery support service models.
1: Sarah, oh, I'm so happy to have you back. It's wonderful to be back, Sam. Thanks for having me again. And thank you, And, and for our
0: listeners, First and foremost, Sarah Howe has been in this industry for decades, I want to say since high school, but she'll give us that background for sure. And we are talking about um, recovery and recovery support because it's, you know, we're coming up on National Recovery Month and Third Horizon Strategies published a white paper um, that was released at a congressional briefing highlighting the importance of recovery supports and saving lives. Sarah's been doing this forever, and you know, it, we're just so excited for her to sort of outline how we enhance um, recovery capital, such as community organizations, collegiate recovery programs, which you have a, a just a ton of knowledge on, and recovery recovery residences. That's a mouthful. But Sarah, can you kind of give us an overview? about recovery capital, what it means, what this term is. I feel like we are always naming things and hopefully you can help us break it down.
1: Sure, well, first of all, thank you again for having me. I always appreciate being on the podcast and this is a really important topic and one that's near and dear to my heart when we talk about recovery supports, recovery capital and and what does recovery mean? In particular, I think to your audience, what role do you have in building recovery and particularly building recovery capital? So let's take a little bit of a step back and answer your question of what are we talking about when we say recovery capital? You've probably heard that term. It's really become much more of a common term, but what it means is what are the assets that we see in a community that build recovery. If we were talking about this from a prevention standpoint, we've had for years talking about the developmental assets, right? And what are the things that build up prevention in a community? Where are the areas where we support youth so that they don't use? This is that same concept, only we're now talking about when somebody is on their recovery journey, how do we continue to support them? what i think is really interesting about this model is it's not another layer that you have to really think about and what i'm particularly mean is we're already talking about social determinants of health so we have a context already in healthcare under social determinants that includes five constructs economic stability education health and healthcare neighborhood and the environment and social and community context. Those are our social determinants, right? And under that, we talk about what are what builds healthy outcomes under a social determinant model. And so we look at things like food insecurity, housing instability, what education is available, what access to healthcare do they have? Uh, what is their environment like? Do they have quality housing? What are we seeing with crime and violence in a community? What are the social connections? These are all the things that I know, Samantha, you've talked about quite a bit, right, at I'm Hip about how do we integrate social determinants. So what I'm going to say now is recovery capital fits really neatly under those same five areas that we've talked about. So this is looking at those social determinants but with a recovery lens. So with a lens for somebody who wants to maintain their sobriety, maintain their recovery, and thrive in their environment. So I'll take a a quick step back and what are we talking about? Under social determinants, let's take education. In, In the context of SDOH, we talk about early childhood. We talk about high school graduation rates. We talk about enrollment in higher education. We talk about literacy. Now let's look a little deeper at Recovery Capital. Do we have recovery high schools? Do we have collegiate recovery programs? What recovery supports exist within education? It's all that same social determinant vertical, if that makes sense. Uh, So I'll pause because that's a lot, but want to make sure I'm connecting those two.
0: Absolutely. And it does. It makes so much sense. And I think you know, to break it down from just that sort of human perspective, when we're thinking about, I'm going to stick with college. When we think about young adults in college that are in recovery, like what a stressful environment to maintain that recovery, right? So they're away from home, there's pressure of exams and studies and trying to figure out sort of what you're doing next in the world and then let's just say not all college students making the best decisions around alcohol and other substances and so there's just a lot there and so the idea of having recovery residences is is like a recover like My understanding, Sarah, is it's like a floor or a small building for students that are in recovery to help support them and to sort of ensure that they have a community they can relate to. Am I thinking about that right?
1: Yeah, I think so. When we talk about collegiate recovery uh, across the country, we've seen this movement grow, which is exciting. They've actually been in existence for more than 40 years but we've now seen a much stronger focus on them. Um, There are some states that are dedicating funding to collegiate recovery, Um, particularly in Illinois. One of the areas that we saw that is of um, particular importance and priority under the Opioid Abatement Council is collegiate recovery is one of the items that they'd like to see more of an expansion. So exactly what you're saying. So collegiate recovery, They develop and they implement programs that provide access to drug and alcohol-free places and locations for students to live, like you said, um, where they can socialize, where they can study together. They provide peer mentorship. They receive recovery supports. Sometimes if you get state funding, they'll provide alcohol-free and drug-free social activities. I will say it depends on the university. What what their funding looks like. Everything goes back to funding, right? That's always part of the question. So in a perfect world, you would love to have that recovery housing piece. And that's where you build that support right away. If you're not able to do that, then having a home base having an office in the union, having a place where students can come together. And if you're at a university where the funds are really small and you're not able to do that, having a regular meeting, whether they're meeting at the coffee house, where they're finding a way to support these students that are in recovery and provide them the peer mentorship and the recovery support. And in most cases, one of the administrators, typically someone who works maybe in the health building and the wellness program, they will be assigned to be um, a guidance, guidance counselor is not really the word, but um, an administrator of the program to support them. So some some states have really built this out. Others are coming to it. And like I said, what's exciting in, in Illinois is that we've seen this as something that the Illinois Opioid Abatement Council would like to look at and do some more expansion of. So I, I'm excited about that.
0: Me too. And I think, you know, it makes sense that why that would work and why that space is so important. And I think when we move beyond sort of the collegiate standpoint, it's the same for folks not in college, right? Like if you don't have housing and, and housing that supports your recovery, it's going to be really hard to stay in recovery.
1: Oh, absolutely. That. I'm so glad you said that, because I think when we go back to what we just said at the top of the podcast about housing, health, social determinants, it it all fits, right? If you don't have a roof over your head, are you going to be focusing, one, on maintaining your sobriety, maintaining your recovery journey, and two, from a healthcare point of view is the first thing that you're going to do is get to the doctor's office. No, you, you need to find where your next meal is. You need to find where you're going to sleep. I mean, all those really key, basic, you know, we go back to that original hierarchy of needs that we all learned, right, in, in grade school. This is where we're at. So it is exactly the same in recovery. And unfortunately, across this country, housing is a challenge, and good recovery housing is a challenge and and you're right so it's not just from a collegiate point of view although i will say community colleges are starting to get on the collegiate recovery train too which is exciting because that's a different student that's a a commuter student often and uh, that's exciting because that's more oftentimes of an adult than a young adult or an emerging adult so we are thrilled to see that but in general you need housing to maintain health. You need housing to maintain your recovery. Absolutely.
0: And, and that's why I'm, I'm excited about sort of what some of what Illinois is doing and our 1115 waiver and some other things of really sort of trying to address the social determinants of health, health related social needs. And I hope that as we get through implementation, they really look at, you know, prioritizing members, especially newly in recovery, almost as sort of that transition out of um, a residential treatment, just sort of yep. making sure they have somewhere safe and supportive to go.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think that's something that our field and our system for a long time has advocated that that continuity of care that you're talking about, If you go back many years now, when SAMHSA, the Substance Use Mental Health Services Administration, created national outcome measures, they created NOMS, one of the key cornerstones of that was continuity of care. And we know if we can give somebody that continuity, they are getting stepped down from residential into a recovery home into a recovery residence, they are maybe going to an outpatient program after this to maintain that continuity, they are more likely to have a successful recovery journey. Their outcomes are going to be better. So if you go all the way back into our history in Illinois, and I'm talking 15 years ago, when then what was called DASA, which is now super, started doing contracts, performance-based contracts. Even before, Samantha, we were doing Medicaid managed care, our providers had performance based contracts and what were the key constructs they had to look at? Well, continuity of care was one of them. The other two were engagement and retention. The three things that we know indicate success, engaging somebody in treatment. And by that, we mean, if there was a waiting list, what options do we give for them you'll see sometimes providers will have um, what they call pre-groups they're not able to get them into treatment yet but they can do some immediate more intervention type groups to keep them engaged right before they get there then retaining them in the care that's critical i mean it's we we kind of pause because it's not rocket science. We know that if we continue to engage someone in their chemotherapy, right, they're going to have better outcomes. So it makes perfect sense for us to say, well, if you're engaged in your substance use treatment, you're going to have better outcomes. We know that. And then we also know, going back to that continuity of care piece, that at the end of the individual episode of treatment, What is the next piece? What is that continuity of care? And fortunately for the field and for Illinois, we started very early in these conversations. We've had them for a long time. Our providers are used to them. And guess what? We now know that the piece that we hadn't talked about as much, which was recovery supports, we have a focus on that. We have a focus on that in Illinois. We have a focus around the country. We have recovery-oriented systems of care councils across Illinois that work to ensure that, again, our communities are building recovery capital. And I think it all goes back to that. When you think about somebody's episode of care in any healthcare situation, and I go back and I've mentioned this before, I'm a cancer survivor. Well, my, my cancer treatment, the radiation was seven and a half weeks. After that, I wasn't actively engaged in treatment, but I've been actively engaged with a survivor group, and I continue to get mammograms every year. I continue to see my oncologist. That's all that engagement and continuity. It doesn't change in the substance use world. We have to have that continuity to maintain that recovery journey, and we have a responsibility to do that too, to not just say, good job, you're done with your treatment episode, push them off into the world, wave goodbye. That's not our responsibility. That's not what we know is best for them.
0: I love that relation of substance use disorder to cancer. Because I think, you know, so often we sort of forget because of stigma and everything else it's substance use disorder is a medical condition. It's brain chemicals, it's all these different things. And treatment is often ongoing and you know can look different at different times in people's lives and you know just like there's relapses with cancer or somebody's diabetes can get worse, I mean that's the same unfortunately with substance use disorder and we would never ever say to somebody with diabetes or somebody with cancer well we did this first thing now off you go on your own without any support any follow-up any continuation and we hope it all works out for you we would
1: never ever say that and that would never be the expectation right right I mean yeah exactly exactly Sam We would not do that. And, and if we did, we might be looking at malpractice, right? (laughs) Right? So you're so right. And I, and I've talked about it for years because my experience as a cancer patient really helped open my eyes to the healthcare journey that I was on and the healthcare journey that our patients are on with substance use disorders. And, what I think you mentioned stigma, and this is so important. There is what I have for years called the car wash mentality. And with substance use disorders, I think the stigma is let's get them into treatment and then they'll be fine. We'll we'll put them through the car wash. You know, we go from the beginning, they come out the end, the car is clean, we go on with our day. Right. That that's sort of the the mentality that we have seen for years in this country which is what you went to treatment. So what are why are why are, why are we still talking about this? Move on. You're you're sober now. And there's been a much stronger recognition I think across the board that this is part of the journey just like somebody with diabetes that is part of their journey and they're going to have episodes. They're going to sometimes wind up back in the hospital. They're going to go back to their doctor. They might sometimes need additional treatment. With any chronic relapsing illness, this is what will happen. And substance use disorders relapse. Let's make sure we're out front on that. The expectation here is not that relapse doesn't happen. The expectation is that when it does happen, we respond just like we have by providing this continuity of care And we can re-engage them in the treatment so we can get them back on that recovery journey, just like someone with diabetes or heart disease. And I often say this to the patient who's had multiple heart attacks and maybe their lifestyle hasn't been conducive to preventing a heart attack. Can you imagine walking into the emergency room and someone looking at the chart and saying, you know, sir, you've had to. I didn't see that you started working out. We're going to have to send you on your way, but thanks for stopping by. Could you imagine that? Absolutely not. And I think
0: that's, I mean, the medical system and the healthcare system doesn't fail people in the same way on physical health conditions. Now, We in the United States have tons of work to do to address equity and health-related social needs and all of that. And and, and nope, and those are, I mean, it's easy to say very quickly, but those are big lips. But never, to your example, is somebody turning away somebody clearly in an emergency state. That does happen on the substance use disorder side, and so, I think as we look and, and sort of think about, you know, recovery and, um, you know, sort of this, we have to look at it across the board. So often we, you know, and you and I have been, have these conversations often on opposite sides of the table. Sure. We talk about mental health parity, which of course includes substance use disorder, but mm-hmm. that's just one piece of this full continuum. Mm-hmm. Air parity, treating mental health and substance use disorder the same way we treat physical health? Absolutely. But what is our system design? Do we have those emergency rooms, if you will, for substance use disorder, but not the rest of the continuum or vice versa? I mean, that's something that a payer, Mm -hmm. especially in the Medicaid space, like doesn't control. That's a program design. And then a a tricky part, I think, for all of us is Provider training, education, stigma, mm-hmm. um, and, and tackling that as well. Uh, not just those who are providers in the traditional recovery, I'm putting in air quotes that you can't see, but like in the recovery space, like not just training of providers at a residential treatment center. Right, right. Training of providers providers that intersect.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. The intersection here. Well, and we know, right. You probably know better than I. You can probably tell me the numbers of how many people are in our emergency departments that are there as a result of a substance use disorder. Right. Or mental health. And for years, how many times have you and I heard the Cook County sheriff say that the Cook County jail is our nation's number one mental health facility? right? Because we've seen people in and out of our criminal justice system, in and out of our emergency department. I think, and I want to commend you, Sam, because at your conference last year, you invited me and a colleague to talk about what does it mean to change our payer system to incentivize recovery and looking at value-based payment models. And I know in the behavioral health space, this has been probably the last frontier, right, for for value-based payment. And yet, It's probably one of the most critical for exactly what you were just saying. The Medicaid Medicaid managed care organizations don't always have all the pieces at the table, right? They're the payers. But what can they do? How can we look at value-based payment opportunities that incentivize recovery, incentivize building recovery capital? Because right now, our payer system, that's all of us, right? Providers payers, the state, everybody, it incentivizes relapse because we're paid by getting into the facility. We aren't paid to incentivize that recovery journey. There are models out there, and I'm grateful for them. We're starting to see them, but we see more of them in primary care than we have on the behavioral health side. And it's time and the conversations are happening on how we do that and and what that looks like. And, And so- from a perspective of, of your association, I'm grateful that you're having these conversations and grappling with them because they're not easy conversations. It, like you and I have said, we have been on different sides of the table sometimes looking at a bill and what that means for the field. But at the end of the day, what we all want is for someone to be able to thrive in their community. That At the end of the day, we all want that. That's when we win.
0: Absolutely. That's, that's really it. And, you know, how do we make it all work? How do we get past our differences and figure out how do we support this program? How do we support recovery? And I'm going to really, I want to just like bring it home on why it matters so much to Medicaid. Like, so not only are we the largest payer for recovery and substance use disorder treatment, But the number one cause of maternal health, of maternal deaths, is substance use disorder, untreated substance use disorder. And it's heartbreaking. And it's all preventable. Often these moms are interacting with the healthcare space and physicians, OB, GYNs, hospital staff, don't know how to help them. They worry about recommending and referring to treatment, what that means. There's such stigma um, around it. it. It, You know, the idea of having a substance use disorder is it? it's so rarely seen as a healthcare condition, which it absolutely is. And it's seen as some sort of like moral failure, which it isn't. And so we've essentially criminalized health care condition, which we do for nothing else, right? I mean, diabetes impacts maternal and, um, you know, newborn health too. We don't criminalize <laughs> diabetes, nor should we, in pregnant moms, but we do for substance use disorder. And because of that, we are failing these moms and babies and what tends to happen is moms decrease utilization significantly during pregnancy because they so very much love their babies but post delivery or some traumatic experience utilization can increase again but their tolerance has decreased and that's where that we see overdoses and yes. it's heartbreaking and it's preventable but we have to have real conversations about the disease, yep. about what recovery works, and education just to providers that, like, medication-assisted recovery is safe for pregnant moms.
1: hmm
0: And, so, so. you know, it, it just, it sounds, as we sort of are talking about it, and we're talking about systems and we're talking about supports, it sounds sort of, it can feel academic if you're not, like, in this space nonstop. Mm-hmm. But I think bringing it back to our failures are causing people to die. I hope brings it home for everybody.
1: I yeah I I agree. I I think maybe I'm an eternal optimist, Sam. One, I think there's there's misinformation and misunderstanding about this disease, and still not the country hasn't fully accepted and embraced what we know which it is a chronic relapsing health condition and yet there's research and i'm talking 20 30 years ago this isn't groundbreaking that shows that adherence to treatment has better long-term outcomes than what you just mentioned which was diabetes heart disease and asthma Substance use disorder treatment, that goes back to like the 90s. It, <laughs> we're, we know this works. So what is the challenge? And it's the stigma, both from an institutional point of view, but internally, I mean, when you're talking about a mom that wants to take care of their child, that will do what they can, but also doesn't necessarily want to raise their head up and say, I have a substance use disorder. There's a real concern about losing their children, you know, all the things that go with that, Right. Um, and then exactly the, the lower tolerance. I mean, this is where we're seeing overdoses and there, there's nothing that brings a home. You are so right more than a new mother that we've lost and a child that will live their life without one of their parents. If we can't come together on that, then we've really got some significant problems if we cannot address that. And so I think having these conversations, talking about what can we do, what needs to change, and that recovery happens every day in communities and individuals. There are thriving recovery communities around this state and around this country. And it is our job to support them and provide them the support supportive resources that they need so that they can continue to thrive and be a part of a larger community as a whole. That's
0: exactly it. And I think, Sarah, that is like the perfect place to end on. You have been so gracious with your time, your expertise. I'm so glad that even though we disagree from time to time legislatively, that we agree at the core of what we're trying to do. And that's help people. And I'm so glad to have you in the trenches with with us here at I'm Hip. But, you know, doing that and how do we strengthen systems? And you are now really doing that on a national level. So just thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And there is there is nobody else that I would rather sit across the table and have a discourse about this, even if At the end of the day, the bill isn't exactly what either of us want. We both know where we want to go, and that is supporting individuals in recovery and preventing it before it starts, too, right? That's what we're all there for.
0: Exactly right. Uh, What is the saying? Uh, um,
1: Ounce of prevention, right? Yes. Worth a pound of cure.
0: An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, Sarah, thank you so much. To our listeners, to learn more about what I'm Hip and Third Horizon are doing, um, please like and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And of course, don't forget to check out our website and listen to other interesting podcasts like this one. Our website's imhip.org. I'm Samantha Oldspry, the Sam and Sam Says. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, be well and stay safe.